Welcome to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare, brought to you in conjunction with Crystal Pier Records. So, Mark, what is it that we're trying to achieve here, exactly? Well, Rich, we're going to go through every single Bob Dylan album uh, in the order in which it was released. Why are we doing this? Well, I guess this started in the early days of lockdown, uh, March 2020. I uh, set myself a task of listening to every Bob Dylan album in order. I'm still not quite sure why I did that. But I was listening to one every day just to pass the time. Um, And you came on board and decided that actually what we really needed to do was spend a week listening to the record and really digging into it and getting reacquainted with it properly, which I heartily agreed with. And because we're now in 2021 and everyone's doing it, we thought we might as well record it as a podcast. Absolutely. And I think that the the other important thing is is almost it's a stroll down memory lane. It's this almost this idea of rediscovering the idea of um, listening to an album as a long term kind of project, almost like you would do when you were a, when you were a kid and you'd have to spend your pocket money on it. And I think that that forces you to, to listen in real depth to all of the songs. And so I think that that's hopefully what we're going to get from this. Yes. So it's very much a middle-aged Bob Dylan fans, midlife crisis kind of thing. Is that what you're saying, Rich? Exactly. You know, kind of, um, you know, seated um, in a chair by the fire with the slippers, but not quite fully run out of energy yet. I think <laughs> the best way of describing it. I'll definitely go with that. Um, <laughs> So, Rich, you came up with the name uh, American Shakespeare, didn't you? What were you getting at with that? Yeah, well, I mean, it, it sounds um, it sounds kind of quite highbrow, doesn't it, really? But, I mean, it, I think as a disclaimer, it's very important to just state that this is not a big piece of academia that we're doing here. But I struggle to think of anyone other than William Shakespeare uh, and Bob Dylan who have had as much influence and worn as many masks and kind of shape-shifted in the way that the two of them have. And I think it's, it's really, as much as anything, it's a nod to that, really. It's that idea of the, the influence, the ongoing influence, but also the kind of sense of mystery. Um, it would be disingenuous to say that we're going to make massive links continually between the work of Shakespeare and the work of Bob Dylan. But I think it's almost more what they stand for that... Uh, that that's important and that's kind of inspired the the title here yeah and and as you say it's very much about us trying to put together the strands of musical criticism in a in a very broad way and our personal recollections and interpretations of the work which is all anyone could do I guess I I agree completely And, and and I think essentially both of them were very cool I mean I say both of them were very cool Bob Dylan is extremely cool um Shakespeare didn't have the benefit of photography to record just how cool he was in fact there's only a couple of portraits in existence but I'm sure that there was a there was a mischievous kind of rascal like uh aspect to his character and I think that that's that's where him him and Bob Dylan kind of converge in that in that respect okay so as a part of the background to this podcast, what we're going to also talk about, as well as the, the entire body of work, is also how we came to each album, because, of course, neither of us really did this chronologically. And that's going to form part of the discussion in each episode. So, Mark, how did you come to discover Bob Dylan, the artist, rather than Bob Dylan, the album, but Bob Dylan, the artist in the first instance? Well, I came to Bob quite late, really. Um, It was the first year of university for me, which was 1995. Um, 
quite a long time ago now, of course. And I suppose like a lot of people, I was in that space where I was ready to discover something new in, in all ways, really. Um, and, and one of my, my best friends when I first got to university uh, was a fellow who lived across the hall from me and had pretty much the same record collection as me. Um, so in those days, that would have been stuff like REM, but not the cool stuff, the, um, the commercial peak stuff that had been around in the early 90s. Uh, the other big sort of bands at the time, like Nirvana and Pearl Jam. So I was kind of primed for sort of alternative American music. And I didn't really have any other education in, in music, uh, certainly not um, the sort of classic canon, as it were. But the great thing about getting into Bob Dylan in those days was that all his records were so cheap because he hadn't had the, the resurrection that he subsequently had after Time Out of Mind. And so you could pick up his, his, his music for a song, really. Um, and my friend picked up the Greatest Hits album um, from 1967 and uh, passed it on to me. And I, I was listening along to it. The first few songs were, you know, perfectly passable. I could get on board with them. But then there was that little run of songs with Like a Rolling Stone and I Want You and Positively Fourth Street. And it was just like, like nothing I'd ever heard before and the doors got kicked wide open and all through the rest of that year I was listening particularly to I Want You um, but then discovering all those other records in any way I could and that was the start of a 25 26 year infatuation really and I'm still discovering more about him which is what's so amazing yeah uh, how yeah. about you Rich well I mean my kind of first encounter with Bob Dylan is is a little bit different in as much as I was probably 14 15 and I read a book about him, first of all. Now, I forget it was a biography, but I forget the, the, the title of it. But that kind of inspired me to want to listen to some of his stuff. I'm, I'm not quite sure why it happened that way round, to be honest with you. But there we go. And my local library, I was a, a real kind of typical frugal teenager. And as much as I would borrow albums from the library and then I would tape them and then I would take them back. And my local library had two Bob Dylan albums, only two Bob Dylan albums, one of which was Under the Red Sky and the other of which was Highway 61. And luckily, I opted for Highway 61, first of all. And it was pretty mind-blowing. I mean, right from the, the kind of pistol crack of the snare drum at the start of uh, Like a Rolling Stone, right the way through it, it, I found it astonishing. I found it completely different to anything else that I'd been listening to. But... Again, it was the kind of mid-90s and there was an awful lot of music around at the time that I was into, lots of guitar bands and stuff like that. So I just considered that to be a great album. I didn't necessarily fall in love with Bob Dylan's music at that moment in time. I fell in love with that album, definitely. And subsequently to that, I've discovered or went on to discover an awful lot of his kind of earlier music. One of the things that particularly excites me about this podcast idea is going ahead and, and looking again at some of his later music because that's something that I, I've kind of cut off around 1976, I suppose. That's really where my expertise about Bob Dylan ends. And so I'm, I'm interested to discover his later stuff as well. Definitely. And I think for me, I've probably had a, a kind of weird fascination with his 80s stuff. Um, so I'm looking forward to listening back to that again. But... I'm with you. It's 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 a funny thing, isn't it? The way that we both came to Dylan and, you know, so long after the fact um, for all these records, really. And I was very much in a place where I was only interested in his electric stuff for a few years. And coming back to records like this one, 
um, was almost like the action of a completist. It didn't really mean that much. I just wanted to get it out of the library, tape it and say I'd listen to it. So yeah, this process is going to be really interesting. And um, are we ready to kick off with uh, the first one? I think so. So um, I mean, obviously, Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan, 1962. And I suppose one of the things that we've that we're intending, certainly, is to have a kind of big question, as it were, with each of these records. And with each episode, we want to kind of deal with a what we hope will be a fairly big question. And in this instance, it's this idea that whether or not the debut album was was just a snapshot of, I suppose, what would be an itinerant folk singer from Greenwich Village, or were all of the elements that we think of when we think of latter-day kind of Bob Dylan, were they already fully formed? I realise that that doesn't trip off the tongue very easily, but um, what do you reckon, uh, Mark, if you want to kind of unpick that one? Well, it's a great question, isn't it? Because I think what's easy to forget now is that it wasn't clear at the time that he was going to become the, the great icon that he, he became. And, and it happened quite quickly, didn't it, with the, the songs on freewheeling that are still um, part of that um, almost American song themselves now, aren't they? Yeah. But at the time, as you say, he was, he was recording these uh, standards, these old blues, folk and country songs. And so I guess my first question really back to you is, do you think there's anything in the, in the record, in, in the songs that he did write, uh, or the way that he arranged some of the songs that he didn't write, perhaps, that suggested he would become this great figure of American songwriting? Oh, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, you've got his two original songs which are on there, which, of course, you've got Song um, song to Woody uh, at the end of it, and then you've got uh, Talking New York. And I think Talking New York, if you listen to a lot of Woody Guthrie's Talking Blues, it's very very amusing and it's very witty but I don't necessarily think there's anything that strays that far from what Guthrie was already doing I think you've got to look really at Song to Woody to to kind of see the way that he he has this ability to kind of encapsulate ideas so effectively and at the same time he's creating this sense of mystery which I mean characterizes so much of his music anyway I suppose that kind of points to it. I think that the the issue I always have is whether or not this was how representative this was of what he was doing at the time, really, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think actually that's another thing that we became used to from Bob uh, later, which is in a funny way apparent on this record, because I suppose most people, if they were a young folk singer who's just been given their first chance to record, would probably go in and play their set. But it doesn't seem like Bob Dylan did that. Um, he's obviously got these two original songs that he was he was rightly proud of that he's recorded, but he left off some of the other stuff he had, um, which has been very well received for many years on bootlegs and official releases recently. And even the cover songs that he did put on, uh, they weren't necessarily the ones that were in his set regularly. Um, I, I don't know to what extent the um, the set lists on BobDylan.com are necessarily authoritative sources, but it, it sounds like he only played a few of these songs in the in the weeks before recording this record. So he was playing at Folk City and the Gaslight Club, and the only one he played, according to BobDylan.com, at the Folk uh, City uh, residency, was See That My Grave Is Kept Clean, and the other songs didn't appear at all. So he'd obviously gone in with a, some kind of a game plan to record a set of songs that was totally different to what he was actually playing in his performances at the time. And I think that in itself is interesting. And, and it became quite typical of him, this way that he, wouldn't, he would never quite do exactly what you'd expect. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Because 
I I must admit, when I first listened to this, and I didn't come to this record until I was kind of well into my 20s, but I'd assumed it was a document of his kind of live performance. I, I literally thought that he kind of came in off the street, they stuck him in front of a microphone, and he played what he'd been playing on, on stage. But of course, as you say, that's that's not the case. I mean, I, I wondered if if an aspect of this might have been to do with the fact that I think a folk singer at the time probably would not have expected to have an enormously long career. They might have expected to put an album out, maybe a couple of albums out, do a few years of touring, but that would probably have been about it. And so I wonder if it, this was an opportunity that he saw to to kind of put down a whole range of, of, of different ideas. But, but even so, it, it's straight from the from the outset you've got that sense of mystery haven't you absolutely and i think that's probably something that some of his friends certainly realized at the time and if they hadn't realized it before they would have realized it when this record came out because of course the other thing about this is we're straight into the dylan mythology aren't we it's november 1961 he'd been in new york for about a year you've got that fantastic self mythologizing story of how he came to new york in the first place and then there's all that stuff about how he would be hanging around in people's apartments, stealing their records, reading their books, assimilating all these influences. And that's the stuff that comes out. And I think that's one of the things that, again, probably foreshadows what he would do for the rest of his career. Because one of the things you see on almost all of his records is that he's really deeply absorbed whatever influences he's drawing on. Um, I mean, in his um, his love and theft period, you know, in this century even he's 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 been called out for, for plagiarizing um allegedly plagiarizing a lot uh, you know certain poets and japanese authors and so on but it but, but even that is, is evidencing the extent to which he's really drinking deep from the sources and we can see here that he's he's really authentically dug into that culture of folk and blues that was around in new york at the time yeah i agree um, and, and i mean and and, and he's, a, he's a sponge for it isn't he really but i suppose there's a couple of the of points that i'd make in in regard to that i mean the first is that Obviously, the folk and blues was was pretty big news at the time. I mean, I know it was on the underground, but if you wanted to make your your name, as it were, then you'd have to be using that kind of material. And so I think he's kind of savvy to that. The other thing is, I guess, that potentially he's using this almost like a calling card um, because he probably wouldn't have thought, oh, I'm going to have this big, long career. I wonder if he's almost touting for work with some of this or in as much as he's saying, look, I can do this style. I can sing in this style. I can play in this style. Why don't you hire me out for, <laughs> I don't know, functions, bar mitzvahs, the like. I'm not sure if it was that kind of simplistic, <laughs> but I, I mean, just the range of the range of material on there suggests that there's a, there's an agenda of sorts, isn't there? I hadn't thought about it in that way, but it certainly would be consistent with that. Always hard to know what was in his mind at any given time, isn't it? But it, it, as you say, it definitely wasn't a case of him just churning out the thing he always did. Even at this point, he was he was looking for some way to reinvent himself and to do something different, which again, I just think is absolutely astonishing for someone in that position. I guess one of the other really big things that Bob Dylan became known for was um, uh, the protest song and the protest movement uh, and his association with political causes, particularly in the next couple of years, but he, at, at various points throughout his career. Do you see much evidence of that in this record, Rich? I have to be honest that I don't really. I think that it's kind of there as an undercurrent in as much as if you're playing music of the genres that he's playing, then in all likelihood, you're going to be reasonably au fait with, with a lot of the kind of civil rights causes, etc. But when you compare this album to what happened 
very shortly after, really, where the protest songs were pretty, over, in fact, incredibly overt. I don't really hear that in the same way on this. I think, and evidently, this was someone who was a great observer of what was happening, and they were very kind of tuned in to issues and ideas of the time. But I don't, I don't really see this as a protest um, album necessarily. Um, I see this much more as a link with the kind of Harry Smith folk anthology kind of era. I mean, he's picked various songs. I mean, you've got the Blind Lemon Jefferson cover, for example. So it shows this real awareness of the, the kind of music that has come before. But I don't really hit, uh, hear this as a protest record. What about you, Mark? I guess one of the things that struck me as I was listening to it over the week uh, this time was that, yes, absolutely, there, there's no overt protest on here. But one of the things that that, that that just screams out at you from the, the first moment you put it on almost is that you've got this very young man and, and you can still do it. Even if you're listening on Spotify today, you see the picture of this extremely young boy. Um, and then you've got these incredible performances of these really mature songs. Um, and in almost all cases, he carries it off brilliantly, doesn't he? Um, and, and one of the big themes that, that comes through is this almost preoccupation with death. And that's been remarked upon a lot, hasn't it, over, over the years. But what occurred to me was that actually the way that death's thought about in a lot of these songs is as a release um, and a release from suffering in a way. And I think that that ties into a sort of Christian, possibly a Jewish understanding of uh, the nature of, of what life's about and what's going to happen after you die. But also it comes out of that kind of 1920s, 1930s milieu of, of rural and urban suffering and, and people living in genuine, uh, genuinely awful conditions. And, and the fact that death actually is a release from this constant daily grind, which is a real battle. And you hear that so much, don't you, in, in, in My Time of Dying um, and in the Blind Lemon Jefferson song and, and, and throughout the record, actually. So I did wonder if that's the kind of, the kind of groundswell where that, that's, that connection with the understanding of the suffering that these songs were rooted in actually then flows through in a way to his, his protest periods later. I suppose in a way it's a, the connection, isn't it? That emotional connection with the human experience, which is common to both. Um, so I don't know if there's a direct line. Yeah, I think, I mean, to be able to sing the songs with such assurance, I think obviously served him then very well when he subsequently went on to write the original protest songs, because you just believe everything, don't you, that, that, that he, he sings. I mean, okay, so it may be masks, it may well be a persona, but I think you still believe it. And I think the other thing to touch on what you just said there is this idea of the performances. I mean, the performances are fantastic on this. They really are quite remarkable. And one of the things that I always wonder about is, had you seen him in Greenwich Village at this point in time um, as the solo singer-songwriter with the guitar and with the harmonica how bizarre would he have seemed how different would he have seemed to other um singer-songwriters because there were plenty of them that were applying their trade at, the, at that point in time what do you think i think that's a really interesting one isn't it i mean it's clear from what people say that he stood out even in that crowd and like i guess that's a story about john hammond just hearing him playing harmonica and sort of turning around and being captivated, staring at the stage, which I find astonishing, but 
you know, evidently this was the effect he did have on some people. But I guess his style was quite different, wasn't it, from a lot of other people? Never mind his, the quality of his performances or the power of them, but he, he would have been quite different from a lot of the, the people who were doing well at the time, I suppose. Uh, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's got to assume that he was he's pretty much a true original. I suppose some of the folk singers that were around at the time were older than him and would probably have seen him as the, the upstart crow if we want to kind of uh, tread the sort of Shakespearean idea once more. But this kind of, uh, yeah, who's who's this kid that's kind of blown in from the prairies almost and uh, is almost trying to take the folk crown? I think one of the, the things that people talk a lot about is this idea that he's the guy that couldn't sing. But I think to listen to the performances on this record, to say that he couldn't sing is is lunacy. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's just laughable, isn't it? When you come back to this record and play it. The, the performances are superb, particularly the singing, as you say. But I think it, that also plays into... Um, the other thing that we think about Bob Dylan these days, which is the, this shapeshifter and the masks that he effortlessly slips on and off. Because I think just the vocal styles alone on on these performances are, are incredibly varied, aren't they? So you start off with You're No Good, which is, I don't know, I don't know how you describe it, just a kind of a romp really, isn't it? Um, then you've got the Woody Guthrie stylings on Talking New York, and then you're straight into this really powerful blues performance yeah yeah and and then you've also still got this tenderness haven't you on song to woody and house of a rising sun um i mean that i think that's just such a delicate wonderful vocal performance and it, you know with, with that song in particular you can't for us in this this uh, day and age you can't stop thinking about the animals can you but even with that background the tenderness of his vocal i think and the vulnerability really shines through and yet it's so different from the, the way he sings all the other songs on the record. You've talked about a few of the, the numbers on this album, but I mean, if push came to shove and you had to talk about your, your highlights and your lowlights, what would they be? Well, I am going to cheat a bit and say that my, my favourite thing about it is his voice. I just think it's so incredible all the way through. And as you say, so surprising coming back to it, because I've got to say this wasn't a record I'd listened to a lot in the intervening years since I first heard it. Right. Um, and I've fallen in love with it, really, all over again. Um, but if I'm going to pick out songs, I think Talking New York is probably my favourite one, just because it's so dry. And and actually, going back to the protest stuff, I mean, he does reference the Woody song on that, doesn't he? The one about robbing you of a fountain pen. Pretty Boy Floyd. Yeah, so he does. It's a nod to him on that one, isn't it? Definitely. Um, what about you, uh, Rich? What would well, you pick out as your highlights? Yeah, I mean, I, I would echo an awful lot of what you've said there. I think that the, the whole thing about this is the performance. I mean, I'd have loved to have been there as a, as a fly in the wall on that st- in that studio when he was recording them, because I just think it would have been pretty breathtaking. It's difficult, isn't it? Because, of course, we are coming to this in the year 2021, where folk singing, solo performance, singer-songwriters, etc. It's moved on um, and developed in such an enormous way. I think to have seen him then would have been a revelation. In terms of my own sort of personal highlights of the song to Woody, I wonder whether or not it's just a, a kind of complete kind of tribute to him or whether or not it's almost like a, a goodbye and farewell note. Because, um, of course, he knew Woody Guthrie. He'd been to Brooklyn State Hospital. He'd hung out with him. He'd played him songs. The more that I listen to it, I, I hear it now as a tribute. What do you reckon? I mean, is it a tribute or is it a, is it a kind of, hey, thanks very much for your influence. I'm moving on. I'm going to become a, an electric megastar. I, I think what that song shows, obviously, is, is the depth of his, his debt and his, yeah. his deep appreciation for Woody. But I thought, in a kind of wider sense, this sort of 
this whole record and that song in particular, perhaps, but this whole record and the fact that he'd obviously very carefully curated these songs from a much wider batch of songs that he knew. I think that really gives the lie to the the sort of the accusation that was thrown at him later that he'd only ever been trying on the the costume of a of a folk singer um, and a and a and an aficionado of this traditional music. Well, it's not really traditional, is it? But you know, the the music of that period. And and I think there's something about the mask in this, but there's also real evidence of that absolute deep knowledge and love for this subject. And I think Song for Woody exemplifies that as much as anything else. Yeah, I mean, just to, to quote Woody Guthrie here, I mean, Bob Dylan sat down with him, allegedly said that Bob Dylan is is not just a, a singer of folk songs, but he is a folk singer. I mean, and, and I mean, I suppose that more than anything is the kind of stamp of approval that's saying, you know, Bob, you've got my vote, essentially. And I think we do see that. I mean, th- this is an artist, isn't it? This is someone who's learnt their craft, who knows their craft. And and I think that's that's kind of important to remember because... To, to look back on him or on his performance here and say he was faking it, I think that's that's just that's selling him short, really. He knew his song well before he started singing. Well, there we go. He said. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's this, Mark? What's this album? Uh, rediscovering it now. What, what what is it kind of? How's it affected you? What's it kind of led you on to? Well, I guess the thing for me about this was that, as I said before, it was never really a record that I'd particularly played a lot and it and when I was first discovering Bob this wasn't a period I was particularly interested in either so really getting into it this time it's almost like discovering it for the first time and it made me think a lot more about the the influences he had um I'd always really appreciated the Hank Williams influence and I'd, I'd gone down that road many years ago and I'd only sort of touched on Woody Guthrie um, and, the, and that side of the influence. So I went back and listened to Dust Bowl Ballads for the first time in a very long time. And I actually appreciated it a lot more than I ever did before, which is not surprising when you've immersed yourself in this stuff for so long. <laughs> yeah. um, and then I ended up trying to find a copy of uh, The Grapes of Wrath again, because I hadn't read that for decades either. And you know, you can't, you can't listen to Dust Bowl Ballads without wanting to read that, can you? So I just went down on that rabbit. Uh, but how about you, Rich? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you say about the Dust Bowl ballads because I, I actually did listen to it again the other day and years back I listened to it a lot and I hadn't listened to it for a while. But I always think of that as being the kind of first concept album in some respects because, of course, you've got this theme that runs right through them. And I wonder, I mean, this, of course, is at a time when albums just tended to be collections of songs that people have put together but without any necessary kind of link between them. And I think I wonder if Bob Dylan's kind of taken that and thought, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna make these thematically linked in some way. I mean, I, I think there's an ambiguity there. We're not entirely sure as to what this link is, but I think that the, it's definitely kind of curated. It's definitely thought out. I think that's that's really important. I'm I'm reminded of a. I'm, I'm sure it was Steinbeck who said this about Woody Guthrie. There was this photograph of him where he's looking straight down the barrel of the camera and he says, this is not just someone who'd rolled in from Oklahoma. This is someone who knows exactly what they want. This is someone who's dead set. on They know who they are and where they're going. This is with regard to Woody Guthrie. And I almost think that you can see this album in the same way. This is someone who people probably didn't realize it at the time but he he knew what was going on he knew what he wanted he was very clear on 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 this song selection and and what it meant to him that's really interesting because i think i agree i mean you can't help but agree um when you you listen to the record but of course on on the subsequent records you probably could make the case that the song selection 
was a bit idiosyncratic. And I guess we'll get into that as soon as next time. <laughs> yeah, I, I have absolutely no doubt that um, that what I say <laughs> week to week will change and be massively contradicted. But um, I think that's the beauty of it. And, uh, and I apologise in advance for any blatant inconsistencies that there will doubtless be. So... <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, what, one one thing that we thought about, I mean, obviously you've got last thoughts on Woody Guthrie. I mean, that's to jump ahead a little bit, but the, uh, the, the kind of epic poem, I suppose, that Bob Dylan performed. And we thought it might be quite nice within the context of these podcasts to have a last thoughts on whichever album we're dealing with. So, so Mark, what are your, your last thoughts then on, on Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan? What are you thinking? I think my biggest takeaway from listening to it this week is going to be that if anyone ever again says to me, oh, Bob Dylan, he's that guy who can't sing, I'm going to thrust a copy of this record, or more <laughs> likely a link to the Spotify uh, version of it. And I'm just going to say, listen to that, because it's it's just astonishing. And it, it, it demonstrates what we all know, really, as Bob fans, that he was, he was and is and remains a fantastic singer. How about you, Rich? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would probably echo that. I mean, I, to, to kind of come back to the to the big question, I mean, it, there's aspects of protest in there. Um, there's aspects of rebellion in there, certainly. The unpredictability is definitely, um, is definitely present within this. And just the idea, really, that while he may not have been fully formed as the artist that he later became, as a songwriter and a performer, he's, he's absolutely, he's, he's got it all, really, and, and evidences it in buckets on this album. So I think that would be my kind of last thoughts on this, really. Thank you for listening to Bob Dylan, American Shakespeare. Please subscribe and tune in to future episodes. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. Search at Dylan American.